Blog Talk Radio. My Facebook. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge, get a fresh new start. MJ Network will bring you there. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network. MJ Network in memory of my sister, Marsha Joyce. And this is going to be a powerful show. The author of The Panacea Project is here. Carol Hammond has always been a loner, a product of the Foster system, and avoided by others because of a skin condition. When doctors discover her immune system holds the key to curing cancer, she struggles to advance life-saving research in a world that sees her only as a means to an end. You have to read this. This is so powerful. And author Catherine Kavor Johnson examines implicit issues of bias, autonomy, for lack thereof, and self-sacrifice. And this child really did. So good morning and welcome to MJ Network. This is a real powerful medical thriller. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be talking with you this morning. Well, I, I am so glad you're here. So give us a brief summary, but why did you decide to focus on two medical issues um, the immune system and her blood. I was like, oh my God, this could really happen. Um, I'm I'm glad that the story resonated with you and feels uh, feels very real. Um, so obviously, you know, one of the medical issues I focus on is cancer, and more specifically, mm-hmm. curing cancer, which is really the heart of the story. And I chose that because, like many and maybe most people, my life has been touched by cancer in some personal mm-hmm. ways. My husband was diagnosed with testicular cancer in 2013 and had a recurrence in 2015. So mm. um, we, we had a rough couple of years. Um, we're incredibly fortunate that he's cancer-free now. Um, but at the same time we were going through that, um, I also lost two other good friends to cancer and, and know many, many others who have fought it or are fighting it right now. So. I, I wrote this book to celebrate the survivors in my life and to honor those who've died fighting the disease. Um, the second medical issue, uh, vitiligo, came into the picture a little bit later. As I started mm-hmm. doing research for the book, I knew I, I, I needed an immune system-related mechanism to make the story seem believable. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to find a condition that would function on two levels, both to drive the plot and to help me develop Kala, my main character, her character. So vitiligo is an autoimmune condition that causes widespread depigmentation on the skin. The immune system actually attacks healthy melanocytes, which are the cells that produce melanin, which is the pigment that gives our skin its color. And um, I I hope I was able to make a convincing argument in the book that it might be possible Mm -hmm. for an an autoimmune condition like that to be reprogrammed, so to speak, to, so that the immune system would then attack other types of cells like cancer cells. And then on a completely different level, I wanted to show that as a person living with vitiligo, Kala struggles with other people's biases and misperceptions about the, the condition, which 
really shape who she is as a character, which is this very tough, funny, independent, and strong woman. I, I was watching the news yesterday, and I was thinking about this book because somehow they came up with an, a medicine or something that's supposed to cure that or help it or make your skin lighter. And I was I, like, I, yeah. And I don't believe everything I watch, but I was like, oh, my God, it's right there. <laughs> I know my husband sent me a link to that as well and was like, I can't believe this. Look at this article. Um, so I, I had the same reaction. I was like, wouldn't that be nice? I wonder sometimes. So we yeah. have Calla. You fall in love with her right away. Tell us about Calla and why did she decide to enter this research program and why did the, what did they find and how did it disappear? That was scary because I know um, myself, I was misdiagnosed with something that the doctor missed. I can't say a whole, on, whole lot on the air. He missed it, and then unfortunately, nine years ago, I found out, holy God, I didn't know that was there. So how did mm. they find out? Yeah, and it didn't disappear until they took it out, and it's been horrible ever since, but I've survived. But oh, you, you, you wait until you find out a test result, and then you have heart palpitations for two weeks until they let you know you're going to live, you're okay. So why I know. Did, what, did they, yeah. what did they find, and how did it disappear? Because her doctor missed it completely. So, yeah, she, um, so the book opens and she, she collapses at work and hits her head and is taken to the emergency room where they have to run a bunch of tests, including um, a CT scan on her brain, and they mm-hmm. discover a growth. So it's sort of just incidental to this accident that she has, which in a lot of ways, that's, that's how a lot of people, I think, or at least people I know, find out that something's wrong. It's, it can be incidental mm-hmm. to, you know, to something else. Um, and then, you know, she she's assigned to a surgeon who runs some more tests, and they decide, okay, the, you know, the only way we can truly diagnose what's going on is by taking a biopsy, which a lot of times, as you know, with cancer is the only way to, to stage it and figure out what type it is. So she's scheduled for a craniotomy, mm-hmm. but uh, when they open up her skull, the tumor's just, it's just gone. It's not there, um, which kind of, you know, yeah, raises a lot of questions. Um, her surgeon thinks that he's made some sort of mistake, um, that maybe her medical records got mixed up with another patient, mm-hmm. maybe she never really had a tumor, maybe that she fell and hit her head and had a concussion, and that's what caused symptoms that seemed like a brain tumor. He's just really reluctant to entertain the idea that her tumor disappeared on its own. It, that, it, that it was the scariest part because you don't know, that could happen. How many times do Absolutely. they tell you that you have, that that you have something and then you you really don't? So I, I learned a hard lesson nine and a half years ago, and now I always double check everything. I don't believe everything anybody says. So just because you're telling me it's this, I'm going to ask somebody else to read the results just to make sure that you're right. But I don't trust anybody I, anymore. And I think that's that's such a good way to be an advocate yeah. for your health. I can't tell you how many friends I've I've had who have gone to the doctor. I had a friend who went to the doctor. She had a lump in her neck. And um, the doctor said, you're, this, you just, you're sick. You have a little virus. That's just your lymph node that's swollen. You mm-hmm. dismissed it completely. And it just kept nagging and nagging at her. And she was getting more and more sick. And I think it was three or four months later, finally was diagnosed with stage four lymphoma. 
That's, so, that's uh, the point. Yeah, I know. The yeah, minute uh, the minute I feel something, I make a phone call and then go. I right, just tell me what it is, and the the person that I go to is very careful. And you know that's how you good. like when they you know take needles and whatever. But what can I say? So her prime who is her primary doctor, and this guy really needs to be put away somewhere. And why did Doctor <laughs> Craig? Oh God. You know, he reminds me of a lot of people. Craft intercept and demand to take over his care, care, and her primary care doctor had a fit. It was like he had nothing to say, and he definitely had a motive. This guy, and it wasn't yeah, a good so, one, people. Um, her her primary doctor at the time when all this happens is is the surgeon who's just done the surgery on her. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and. What happens is word gets out about what happened in this surgery that, you know, it might have been on the wrong patient. And that's that's really unusual in a hospital setting. So, you know, word kind of trickles out. And her case comes to the attention of this doctor, Carson Kraft, who he's been trying to prove a theory that he's developed that mm-hmm. certain people are immune to cancer. So he is always on the lookout for these so-called miracle patients people who experience tumor regression in the absence of treatment. And since those people are really, really rare, they're really hard to find, um, it's it's incredible that someone has popped up in his own hospital, mm-hmm. um, the exact person he's looking for. So um, he insists on recruiting for her for his research study, and he's, he's just the kind of hard-charging, arrogant, won't-take-no-for-an-answer mm-hmm. person. So... Um, Yep, he barrels into the recovery room and almost won't leave until Calla's surgeon comes in and intervenes on her behalf and says, she just had major surgery, you need to back off, she needs pain meds, she needs time to rest, she needs time to think. Um, so He didn't care, though. You know, I've been getting to, since recently, realize that doctors are in it for the money. And urgent cares are in it for as many people as they could see in a day. And it's it's horrible. And to get somebody to call you back, you're better off going, going, make, going, making an appointment or going straight to the office so you can get the results that you need to get. Because nobody calls back anymore. It's really, it's frightening. And and that, that, that that's the sad part because to me, medicine has not been the same, and I don't think doctors care as much as they did. As a matter of fact, if you make an appointment with a physician, if you get 10 minutes, you're lucky. It's every 10, five, 10 minutes. It's hard, scary. So who yeah. are the members of his team, and what exactly are they asking her to sign? Because she really needed, and then there's Ray, who I like, but why did she encourage her to have the operation? Um, well, I'll start with the members of Dr. Kraft's team. So yeah. He has, he has a three-person research team, so it's he's kind of the lead. Um, he works with another doctor, Juhi Pemaraju, who's a hematologist-oncologist. Mm. So she specializes in cancers of the blood, bone marrow, and the lymphatic system. Uh, there's Ruben Sanchez, who's a nurse practitioner and an assistant mm. to Dr. Kraft. And then Ralph Grimes, who's a lab tech and an IT person. Mm-hmm. And when she's initially approached by Dr. Kraft, he asks her to sign a consent form to participate in the research study, which explains what he's doing and, and what will be expected of her. Um, 
and then when it comes to Ray, her backstory is that Kala, she never n- knew her father, and she lost mm. her mother at a very young age and entered the foster system and, and, and had a very tumultuous experience. She got moved around a lot from individual foster family homes to group homes to residential facilities. Um, and, and in the beginning, there also wasn't a lot of consistency with her caseworkers, but um, then she met Ray Wiley, and Ray is a social worker who meets Calla when she's about seven years old, and they quickly form a very deep bond, one that lasts through Calla's adolescence and into her early adulthood. Ray becomes basically her surrogate mother. So when Calla gets sick, Ray is right there by her side every step of the way. She is terrified by the brain tumor diagnosis and really wants Calla to do whatever she can to fight her cancer. So that's why she encourages her to to do the surgery. She's blessed that she had a social worker that cares. Seriously. Yeah, I, I, she had a really tough childhood, and I wanted to give her yeah. somebody. I wanted to give her an anchor um, so that she wasn't completely alone in the world. I know. I've dealt with, as, as an educator for a million years, um, I dealt with social workers, and I dealt with, you know, home, you know, foster agencies and stuff like that. And to get a, what you might call a social worker or a foster agency person that actually cares about the kids is like 90% and you're not going to get one. If you get a lucky 10%, you're lucky. So when she decides to sign up for the study, her life changes. And what really scared me was that he took so many blood tests. That's dangerous. So, I mean, mm-hmm. he what exactly is he up to when he questions? He gets very defensive, like, oh, this is the way it is. And I felt so sorry for her. I was going to say to her, back off. Don't do this. But she didn't have a choice. Right. Once once she had and, – and there's a second round of forms that she signs. Um, yeah. The hospital wants her to sign a settlement and a release of claims. Um, they're worried that she might sue them after this non-surgery that she had. Um, so, and as part of that, um, so Dr. Pemiraju, who is uh, Dr. Kraft's colleague, she also becomes concerned that Kala really needs a little more protection. So all of mm. that gets um, included in this second document that provides compensation for Kala. So she starts to get paid to be part of the study. Um, and as a result of that, Dr. Kraft kind of starts to act like, well, well, now I own you. You're my employee. You're going to do what I want and what I need. And, um, you know, as as he and Dr. Pemiraju start to make some exciting discoveries about how her mm. blood might be curing cancer in some of their lab animals and how these other mysterious lesions that are in or on her body, they appear and disappear. They need to take more and more blood samples and tissue samples, which eventually require surgical biopsies um, and more extensive scans so they can really try to figure out what's going on, and if they can identify those the cellular mechanisms that are driving these unique immune responses that she's having. And since blood and tissue samples don't last forever, uh, they need to replenish their materials pretty frequently. So, And Cala is the source of that. So she ends up in the hospital. Yeah, well, this was really scary because I love Ruben. And Ralph, hmm. After a while, Ralph really reads the article about it, and he asked, they're asked to go on TV to talk about it. And Kala goes with them. Why does she want, he wants her there? Because she's like the anchor. Without that, forget it. 
And that's what's really scary because this is all about making crafts look good. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, Kala is the human face of this project. And so when, you know, Ralph leaks the story about the study and, and what her immune system can do and he makes these allegations that that Kala is being mistreated, um, the study, it's put at risk. They might be investigated. Their funding, they might lose their funding, and so it suddenly becomes really urgent for the hospital to get it, its side of the story out into the world. And they they very much want Kala to be a part of that, but she's she's in a very vulnerable position. Her privacy has just been stripped from her without her consent, and you know it feels like everyone wants a piece of her, even mm-hmm. people at the hospital, the people who are supposed to be protecting her. They have an angle. They they need to raise money. They want to raise the hospital's profile. Um, mm-hmm. So when the idea of doing this big TV interview is first raised, she's, I think, very understandably hesitant at first. She doesn't want to draw any more attention to herself. But then when someone makes a valid argument that, you know, the future of the study might be at risk if if you don't help us tell this story, she she makes the decision that the work is, is too important for her not to give the interview. So she agrees to do it. It's sort of like a guilt, making her feel guilty. And they really, there is she that didn't, component of that. Yeah, they, they did try to make her feel guilty. And I'm saying they're not doing it because they care about her. They're doing it because it's money for them and Kraft, who, right. deserves, yeah, they, who they, deserves to have the operation himself, seriously. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, he is, he is, he is, there's really nothing very redeemable about him at all, except for, of course, his great intelligence, but he's not a good human being. I've um, met people like that, unfortunately. So when she's questioned and Kraft is gone, she's kidnapped the first time, and I love Brandon. Why does she need security, and why did he chance, you know, taking care of her? Because he realized he had a, a sense that something wasn't right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so she gets kidnapped uh, at, as she's walking outside the hospital, and luckily for her, her kidnappers are pretty inept, and she's able to escape from them. But mm. she gets injured in the process, and and after that, it's pretty obvious that now that everybody knows who she is and what her body can do, she needs protection because everybody is literally out out to get her. So the hospital hires a private security company to provide round the clock security for her, and one of her, one of her guards is Brandon Foster, who is a former Navy SEAL. But when we need him, he's 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 a little he's cold, he's standoffish. There's, he's clearly a little hesitant to take this job, and and um, we don't know why at first. Eventually, we find out at the very end of the story. This is this is so scary. So just when you she thinks she's safe. This got me the chills. I was like, I wanted to go through the book and punch the guy in the head and do something, get the needle and plug his blood out. How did they get her a second time, and how did you create those scenes? She must have been terrified. And there must have been a lot of research to do. Um, well, I mean, I read a lot of, of thrillers, so I probably... Me I too. Think it was just, <laughs> yeah, I love a good thriller, so I, I kind of drew on the stories that I love the best when I was creating the second kidnapping scene, um, mm. I knew for sure that it was going to be, 
done by people who are much more sophisticated and well-funded than her first kidnappers. So it needed to be the opposite of the first attempt. Um, and that was really the driving force behind the decisions I made when I was writing those scenes. I wanted to create this very airtight scheme with kidnappers who were, they were ruthless, they were professional, and they were going to, they were going to get this done, you know, in about two minutes. So oh, hopefully I, I conveyed that. I did, and I knew who was behind it. I could tell that right away. That I knew. <laughs> I, I figured that out. Well, this is, like, scary. So this bothered me. She There was a little boy, right? And her blood... A, a little girl. Would, a little girl, I mean, she, and she was going to save her life. Why were they against that? And she, what happens when she wants to give her blood to save the child's life? Why does Kraft, that monster, tell her, no, you can't do that? Um, yeah, that was that was um, that was a hard scene. Um, so, Calla, yeah. uh, Ruben takes Calla to do an art project with some kids who are who are also cancer patients. Um, when she is kind of she's getting weary of all all of this all of these tests that are being done on her, and she's trying to question her commitment to the study. And um, but she she goes and does this art project with these kids, and it and it, and it reignites. Um, her commitment to the study. And while she's there, she meets a little girl named Lizzie who's a leukemia patient and uh, um, is very touched by this child and immediately is like, I need to save mm-hmm. this little girl's life. I am, I have the means to do it. But he goes to the lab and, and makes this statement to Dr. Kraft and, and he completely shuts her down. He says, absolutely not. We're not doing that. Um, and so it, they have a conversation about why, um, and he not very nicely lectures her, but he, you know, he points out that you know we're not a hundred percent sure yet that your blood can cure cancer, yeah, um, right. and we don't. We could be putting this child's life at further risk by experimenting experimenting on her without having more data. And he also argues that you know it would it be fair to help this child and not another patient? Calla only has a certain amount of blood in her body at any given point in time, and there's no way she can heal everyone in the world who has cancer. So. He thinks it's better to wait until they figure out how her immune system works and then use that, translate that into a treatment that can be produced on a mass scale and help lots and lots of people. Um, so they're all valid points, but they feel really heartless, um, I think. I mean, I hope they do. That was what I was meant to convey because, you know, now we've, we've met Lizzie. We've fallen in love with her just like Calla has, and we want a miracle for her. Um, and I, I thought it was an important scene because it shows how frustrating it is for Kala to know that she has this power to heal mm-hmm. people, but there are these bureaucratic roadblocks and also some very real concerns about fairness and safety that prevent her from using it. And that actually, that makes me think of something we were talking about earlier about, you know, the frustrations that all of us encounter as patients when we're, when we're trying to get medical care. And I think mm-hmm. so much of that is driven by bureaucracy and, yep. and, and, you know, and insurance companies making it hard to access treatments and making it hard for doctors to provide care. And so I, I wanted to try and get, you know, that feeling across that she feels trapped in the system that, you know, there are, there are people with the best intentions, but they can't always make them happen. It's the truth. And, uh, you know, you go to the pharmacy, this has been happening a lot, and they're running out of antibiotics. Um, mm-hmm. when, when they, yeah, my, my husband had a whooping cough, whooping cough. 
he didn't want to go to the doctor, but I said, you got whooping cough. And he, I, I had it when I was a kid, and I was like, holy God, they ran out of cough medicine. And I know. They had, yeah, and they went, went into one of the pharmacies, I won't say which one, and I was talking to the uh, pharmacist, and I said, this is the situation. And she prescribed something that would have been worse, would have put him in the hospital. When you have high blood pressure, you can't take certain medicines with certain um, cetaphedrine and a whole bunch of stuff in it. And finally, we find carisidin, which is which, which was fine. But then that took me to call my pharmacist to get the right answer. There, there, there's so much abusive medicine now; it's horrible. And they're running out of they're running out of a whole lot of stuff. If you go into urgent cares um, and you need a specific medicine, they it ran out. Or there are providers actually that won't give you the medicine that that you want because they don't think you need it. So that's, yeah, that's I know. scary. There's so many supply chain issues. Even at my local grocery store yesterday, there were signs yeah. on the shelves for allergy medicine saying you can only get a limited number of these because we don't we don't have a huge amount of stock. So it's a serious problem right now. And uh, and you know what? They don't they don't care. The pharmacies can only do what they can do, and the doctors like they don't care. They say okay, you'll take this instead. No, not really. People have to look up the side effects and look up what they interact with because you don't know if you're taking something that's going to make you worse. So he's he's doing this craft. God, I'd like to take the blood test craft. Why is he doing this? And craft is abusing her when they take so much. And how does that affect Callie? Um. So yeah, he after she's kidnapped the second time. He yeah. has the freedom to do whatever he wants to her. Any, I mean, there's just no limit. There's no Dr. Kamaraju there to protect her. There's no hospital oversight. So um, he starts just day and night performing whatever tests and procedures he needs because he's actually under a lot of pressure from his, you know, quote-unquote business partner to complete his research. Um, so he takes what he wants without any concern for the impact on her health, and eventually this this really – Weakens her body. It's, it's it's horrible. It's horrible. You know, I just saw um, there's there, there's a company that's trying to actually cure cancer with a vaccine. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And then there was something on the internet yesterday. I read all this stuff uh, that Moderna wants to come out with a vaccine for COVID. Yeah. Okay. Um, who knows? if they're ever going to get anything. I don't even know, to be very honest, if they want to cure anything, if they just want to get a vaccine that you take every year so that you don't get it. Because if they cure it, you're not going to have to worry about it. Wouldn't that be nice? That, so. And that actually, that that conversation happens in my, in this book as well, where, uh, yeah. where you know, they're talking about, you know, it's one thing to, to treat cancer, but if you, if you cure it or, or create a vaccine for it, this whole every you know the need for cancer hospitals will go away. The need for for drug companies to you know do research on cancer treatments that will all go away. Even even nonprofits that are dedicated to it go away. And so some of the more cynical characters really wonder like they think there is a conspiracy um, to prevent a vaccine from coming to market. Well, for all of those reasons, because of it's the, scary. It it's a lot of scary work. Yeah. My next-door neighbor was just diagnosed with it out of, out of nowhere. She had no idea. 
she went for something and now she's had to go on for she was in the hospital for one week then she went back she I don't even know if she's home now and they had to do treatments a couple of times and she got blindsided by it you just don't know and yeah they, and they it don't, is. it's scary and they can't cure it so you don't know if after they're done if if it's going to come back you have to pray to god that they get it right away and they can't operate they told her Oh, I'm so, so sorry it, to hear that. Yeah, it's, um, it's scary. Uh, but that's it why, is, and, and you know, you, Yeah. That was our experience, too. When my husband was diagnosed, it definitely, you know, felt like it came out yeah. of left field. You know, one day he's like, does this look weird? And then, you know, the next day you're at the doctor's office getting an ultrasound, and, you know, two hours later you're getting an MRI and, you know, making a bucket list, essentially, um, yeah, Sorry. exactly. It, um, and and you're right too. I mean, my husband was really lucky. He, you know, even I mean, well, he was lucky in the end. But you know, he had stage one seminoma, that is a highly treatable form of testicular cancer. It hadn't spread as far as we knew when he had his surgery. Um, but you do, you constantly look over your shoulder, and and in our case, you know, we I'm glad that he went and kept getting the scans because it did spread. It spread into his um, a retroperitoneal lymph node, and he ended up having mm-hmm. to have proton radiation therapy. But you do, you know, every however many months it is when you know for your for your scans. In his case, it was six months, and then once a year, you know that tension builds up, the anxiety and. And you worry and you worry and you worry and and then you get the good news and you're like, okay, I can take a deep breath and I'm relieved and it's all okay, but the next one's still there. It's just, it's always kind of sitting on your shoulder and the fear never really goes away. I I agree, but you know, I'm terrible. Um, I I have a condition which is not bad and I'm supposed to get my bloods done every month. I, every, once a year, I get them done every four months. I don't even care. And at this point, I tell them, just do it. And if I have to pay for it, I don't care. I need to know that I'm okay. Yeah. And I, I don't care. The best thing you can do. Yeah, that's the best thing you can do as a patient is to advocate for yourself. And yeah, because for what, nobody for what you need do. for your mental health. Yeah. There's no mental health in this person anymore. <laughs> Thank you. <for laughs> that. I told no, it's just that this has been a week from whatever with my 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 um, sister's first husband. That's a whole other thing. Is in the hospital with heart problems, and oh. um, I've been e- check, emailing his his new wife to get information, which she does give me somehow. And it's just everything this whole week. It's like, oh God. So, um, how does how can someone with somebody? There are a whole bunch of researchers researches for all times and everything. How can someone that allows themselves to be part of these studies protect their rights and get full disclosure before of what to happen? And then sometimes they make you sign a non-disclosure form so that you don't tell anybody what's happening. So how do you protect yourself from what she went through? I mean, the best thing to do is you have to you have to read all the paperwork and you know I'm a former lawyer so I would you know yeah. I would also like really recommend that somebody gets a third party to read through it too not necessarily a lawyer but someone you trust um, mm-hmm. and it's really important to ask questions even and you know sometimes mm-hmm. you know I, I get this way too I you know I might feel intimidated in the presence of someone with an MD or a PhD but mm-hmm. 
you have to push past that and, and get to a place where you feel 100% comfortable that you understand what's going to be done to you and how the information that is gained from that research is going to be used. Um, you know, there are a lot of laws and regulations in place to protect patients from being abused or taken advantage of, and, and the penalties for violating those rules are, are, are high enough that they act as a, a really powerful disincentive against bad behavior, but that doesn't mean the system is perfect. So, you know, as, as we've been saying, patients and their families are, are their own best advocates, and they've got to feel empowered to act in their own best interests. And, and, and to do what you said earlier, which is if you have a feeling that something isn't quite right, get a second opinion. Don't worry about oh, yeah. hurting your doctor's feelings. Don't worry, you know, you know listen to it that It bothers voice. me because the person that misdiagnosed misdiagnosed, missed it in 2002, 4, 7, and 11. So when I went to this other provider in 2013, and he said, you have this entity in your jaw. His <laughs> right foot away, I have a star mm. tw- you know, tw- tw- twilight zone. This thing was huge. You don't feel it. You don't know oh what it's until somebody tells you. So uh-huh. he said, you you need to call the surgeon. I go, I don't like him. No, it's okay. Um, I, I, I was a, a basket case for a month and a half because until they removed it and then it it doesn't leave you. It left me with a lot of problems, but you know what? At least it was a benign eight centimeter, whatever. And mm. he missed it. He literally missed it. And I said to my attorney, who's of no use, um, I, I called the, his office, the doctor's office, and got the exact x-rays from 2002 all the way to 2013. I got them all. And... The lawyer for the other side is as corrupt as anything because she was sitting on the phone when her medical provider said, settle because she's got, you don't have a case. He missed it. And it's nine years that she's been doing a whole lot of things. So it's it's scary. You have to be able to ask questions and somebody tell you something. A lot of times they don't want to answer them. And basically I don't care. So That's right. This is, That's right. If Callie was was amazing, you know, and I, I felt so bad. How did you create all the threads together at the end? How did you put them all together? And by the way, what I really liked was, and I'm, I got the book in front of me, was the lead-in sentence. Dr. Kraft was tapping his foot, so I had a feeling he wasn't going to be happy in that chapter. It took a while. I mean, just the lead-in sentence gives the reader a chance to say, oh, well, this character is coming through. This is going to happen. You sort of know from the from the first sentence. This was really go 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 go. A man barked as he jumped into the passenger seat. You sort of like had a feeling like what's going to happen. How did you oh, decide you. to do that? Um, I you know in terms of I I, I like stories that that move really quickly that propel yeah. you through the plot. So I I try I I. That's that's my writing style is is really to keep it spare and and convey as much as I can through action as possible. Um, and uh, so I'm I'm so glad that that you that it resonated with you and you liked it. Um, and then in terms of I did yeah at the end you know I know it's it's not necessarily the happiest ending but I wanted it to be really impactful. And it was really important for me to, like you said, to gather all of those threads to make sure that that, that Calla was in control of her own story and, and her own fate. 
so that because every after everything that that happens to her and everything that's taken from her that that was that mm. was really important for me that was kind of her last stand um and even though it's sad in so many ways, I wanted the story to end with with hope and love and because uh, those are some of the most powerful forces for good in this world so um hopefully hopefully i I did that and it and it and it moves people. Well, if you read chapters 55, 55 was really great, and chapter 56, I've got a box of tissues. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I did. But before I forget, um, Thursday, this is really an interesting book. It's called The Coronation, and it's not a typical one. You're going to have to find out. Justin Newland will be there on April 4th. I was in shock. Um, the author that's taking over the Treadstone series, Robert Ludlum series, Joshua Hood agreed to do an on-air on April 4th to talk about it. On the 11th, uh, somebody we know and love, Susan Outlet, Wayward Assassin, talking about a real um, attack in a school in Russia, and she saw she was there. The 12th, uh, somebody that's really hysterically colorful, Jim Nesbitt, Dead, cert, uh, dead Certain Doubt. On the 13th, here's where Fran gets to shine, I think. My reading professor from Lehman College, Dr. Cavuto, and I are going to talk about questioning skills. People that ask questions, teachers that ask questions engage K-12. to It's my field. I'm a reading and writing specialist. We're going to talk about the type of questions that teachers need to ask in order to get kids from grades K to high school to think not so literally, but to really understand what, what the author is trying to say and the meaning of the book. The 17th, New York Times author John Gilstrap, White Fire. And on the 20th, New York Times author, The Man on the Run, Charles Salzberg. And that's just part of it. We've got um, Robert Dagoni and Don Bentley at the end. This has been, this is going to be a wild month. But it, it, it's exciting. So the ending you said was was powerful. What, how did you create um, that last chapter before the last chapter? How did you create Chapter Fifty Five? I um, I was inspired by um, mm. a story that I read about a woman who also had a brain tumor, and uh, was I think she was living in Oregon or moved to Oregon so that she could um, choose to end her own life, and um, and and I she there were a series of of stories and videos about her, and uh, and she shared her final moments with the world where she was in a very comfortable place with the people she loved and, 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 and music that she enjoyed in the background. And uh, that really struck a chord with me. So that was kind of the inspiration for the, for the final scene in the book. Um, and I, you know, I wanted Kala to be, with with her friends and her chosen family um and and in control of of her life. Well, how does she she feels? I'm reading page 282 because it's not going to give her anything away. She said that she was sure that her body can cure cancer, right? She thinks or prevent it. And the second part we're not going to say. So, how did why did she think that? And she said she also made a comment about a vaccine. Um, so what? So why did she think that her she body? Thought could her cure bo- she thought her body. She thought she could kill cancer. She thought her blood could do it. 
in her own she mind. She did. I, yeah, and, and um, by then she had been, you know, per, there there was enough evidence that uh, mm. that that what that the theory was true that, that her body could cure cancer. Um, Wouldn't that be nice? I, yeah, I mean, it, it's you know when I when you think about it, it's 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 an extraordinary thing, but it, it comes with a lot of a lot of implications that that could be hard for a lot of people to to uh, to manage. And so, Cal is a really a really special person. Um, she you know she's very very selfless, and when she finds out that she has this ability, you know she chooses to to use it to help people. Now, here's the sentence we were talking about before on page 282. A vaccine could be more disruptive. And this is true because they're claiming that smart people, doctors, scientists, engineers, and investors might find themselves out of work and they may not want to solve this problem. And yet the, the only way they seem to be able to cure this disease is the same horrific way that can make somebody feel worse than they did before. And you have to pray that the treatment works. That's what's scary. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, so, you know, the, the treatments that we have available right now, you know, chemo, radiation, uh, not and surgery, much. Yeah. They're, they're, they come with a lot of side effects. As a matter of fact, when even when my husband had his first surgery, we had a long talk with his oncologist. He was, he was young. He was in his, in his 30s. And uh, his oncologist initially said, you know what, you're a really good candidate for just having the surgery and then having us, and, and then we're, we'll do surveillance on you. And, and and so my husband chose not to do chemo or radiation at first uh-huh. because of the that. potential side effects down down the line. It can cause other cancers. And you know, as I said earlier, his cancer did come back, and it was in a part of his body where it, radiation was the only way to treat it. Um, and luckily, he was a candidate for proton radiation therapy, which is a newer form of, of radiation therapy. Traditional radiation therapy uses photons, which pass all the way through the body, and proton therapy can actually stop at the target, so it only passes through, you know, maybe the front part of the body to get to the inside and doesn't go through the back. It stops at the tumor. Um, don't ask me to explain the science behind it because I don't understand it, but I'm, I'm very grateful for that because it means that there's just less damage that's being done. Um, but, you know, what we have available to us now, none of it's perfect. So um, I know. something like what, what Calo represents is it's just it could change everything, but it could also, you know, as we talked about, it could disrupt everything. But I she just, tells people, like, no matter what, like, please she, don't she give up on She spoke this. out. I know, and I felt so bad for her because it's his fault as to what happened. He should be, you know, responsible for whatever he did. But it's just, it's scary. You have to be, you know, grateful that you actually decide, okay, I'm not going to go back to this guy. I'm going to go somebody else. And sometimes by going to somebody else, you might find out something. But if he didn't go to that person, it could be worse. You don't know. That That's that's what's really scary. And then when you do, they look at you, well, how could you go to somebody else? Well, what can I say? That's what worries me, that people need to understand that failure to diagnose, you know, can happen to anyone, anybody. It and, can, and unfortunately it can happen even more often to people who are yeah. are, are the most vulnerable. 
and, 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 you know, we really, you know, we need to look out for those people, the most of all people who have, you know, historically not been treated well by the medical establishment, you know, and it's just, um, it's again, being educated about, about advocating for yourself is, I think one of the most important things that we can do as patients. That's that's the truth, and I try to tell that to my cousin, and I said to her, you had this and this and that, your bloods came out bad, pick up a phone, so what if it's Saturday, that's what they're there for, oh, I'm going to wait, I said, well, if you wait, you might be too late, she's like afraid to ask a question, I said, you're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars with your insurance every year, you can ask a question, I don't even hesitate at this point, if something bothers me, I'll call after, after, after hours, and tell them it's an emergency, if I want to know, because I have to be able to function and do my job and sleep and do whatever. And, of course, you know, do other things that are important. <laughs> so, Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's, yeah. it's it's the right approach is you've got, you, yeah. you've got to speak up for yourself and you've got to ask questions and not be afraid to push when when you feel like you're not you're not getting the full story or someone's not looking at the whole picture. You know, I know my lawyer is not keeping me apprised of my case either, so I have to do something about that. They're going to court on Monday, and um, if he doesn't give me the link, I didn't realize that you're allowed to be on on the on the call. That I could have been on every call that they made in you know for for the court. I found that out when I spoke to the court reporter, court clerk, and she said if I don't get the link, she'll give it to me so I can be on the call so I could hear what they're saying. Because I don't need him to speak for me. I'm really smart, they tell me. So what do you hope readers will learn after reading this novel? And the people that are most vulnerable are people that are, number one, can't read. Number one, have no one to advocate for them. And number two, people that are much older that don't comprehend, too. That worries me. Because people in the hospital, if there's nobody there to help you, they'll just agree to anything. Yeah, okay. And sometimes you just wonder why they don't say, I have to call somebody that, you know, your daughter or this one, to ask a question. So what do we do? What do we hope readers will learn after reading this novel? Um, well, I think the first thing is that I just hope that people are inspired by Kala's courage and her selflessness to, to do mm-hmm. something kind and compassionate for, for people in need. And um, I hope it encourages people to think and talk about issues like bodily and personal autonomy and the importance of informed consent and, and the ethics of medical research. But, you know, to your point, I, my mother had a stroke um, about five years ago and I'm now her primary caretaker. And so, and as she ages, uh, you know, I'm having that experience that you just described too, where she's in the mm-hmm. hospital a lot. She has a lot of medical issues. And a lot of the time it's like, thank God I was there to, to serve yeah. as her advocate because if she was by herself, you know, and it doesn't even matter necessarily how old you are, but, but I do think age yeah. factors into it. You know, when you're sick or you're hurt, you're scared and you're not always able to comprehend clearly what's going on or make good decisions for yourself. So I just, I mean, I hope my story inspires people to, mm-hmm. to you know, help out family members or, or serve as an advocate for a friend. Um, or, you know, even to just volunteer for an organization that provides those services because that's what people need. They need someone by their side who is focused just on them and, and what their needs are and, and says, I'm here just for you, and, and I don't have any other agenda. 
I texted my niece because her mother is in the hospital for the 97th time because of the rehab, whatever, they're messing up. And I said to her, I texted her, I said, I know this because I dealt with my mom for 100 million years. Before you discharge from the hospital, yourself or anyone else, have a social worker come and assess you for hours if you're entitled to Medicare or Medicaid, and have a nurse assess you for how many times they're going to come to check you during the week. And I try to explain this to my niece because I did it for my mom. And if you don't like the nurse, and trust me, I did it, you have to you have to have guts. And I never knew I did this. Could do it. But nurse, that was assigned to my mom's case when she had Alzheimer's. She, my mom got 12 hours of, you know, of care. She needed 24-7. Uh-huh. And the nurse that we had, that she had, was trying to say, oh, well, she's not that sick, blah, blah, blah. I made a phone call to the nurse care man, case manager, not my bestie, she didn't love me. I said, please uh, eliminate this person and give me a different nurse. I said, I'm fine. I don't like her. I don't, th- I don't trust her. I don't feel that she's right for my mother. Thank God I did. Thank God I did. Because yeah, it is. I Yeah. It's scary. It is, and and I learned when my mother had her stroke. Like I had to, I had to completely educate myself about how Medicare works and how to yeah. get skilled nursing and how to get mm-hmm. healthcare. And no, it's it's this, it's just this whole other murky world. And and I completely agree with you. Like you, I I we ended up having a really great social worker help us the first time and it, it really made all the difference. I mean again it just comes down to it comes out down to advocacy and taking advantage of, of the resources that are available if they are. And and we need to fight to make those resources available to people who are, are less privileged. So just me I know. My mom had no money. My father died out of crazy circumstances. Right before his insurance his life insurance came through, he died a month before so they didn't pay it. So that made it even hard for all of us, you know, to to try to help her. But the the one thing that that I did that I did learn is that um, she she had Medicare, and I got her Medicaid because I learned how to work the system really well. Mm-hmm. And her her home health aid left her on the street corner, and she got kidnapped because the aide went into a store to buy something for her daughter. When she came out, my mother was gone, and my mother's in a wheelchair. Where's she gonna go? Oh, Somebody, that's terrible. Yeah, this guy kidnapped her, and thank God he did. He took her to the hospital, and nobody knew. So when I got there, he looked at me, and I'm going like, oh, my God, yeah, to see this guy, you would have thought he was out of an Alfred Hitchcock um, sci-fi movie. And he said, just tell him I'm your brother, John. He said, and I brought your mother here. I said, you're more like a, than a brother. I said, you're a godsend. Thank God he, he did it. And it was, it's like scary because – Nobody, nobody knows. Um, he he just went out of nowhere just to, to selflessly take her and put her in the hospital. If you don't have somebody that's right there to speak for you, my mother couldn't speak for herself. So, what is what is next for you? And first, before I say that, how did you write chapter fifty six? It says it all. I won't tell anybody what it says. It's so sad, but it sort of explains it. I'm trying to remember <laughs> chapter fifty six. Um, That's the one with is, the with the with um, uh, the the chapter about Kala. That's also ah uh, okay. Um, well, I just I I read a lot of different uh, versions of that type of piece of writing, 
and yeah. and try very much tried to mimic that. Um, and I also I thought it would be I knew I was repeating a lot of information, but I thought in a way it could be mm-hmm. nice for the reader to to go back and have a summary and kind of you know have a short version of wow I've just been on this crazy ride and oh here's a nice little summary of what I just went through and then I also you know tried to to weave in some new pieces of information because I it I don't I. I really tried my best not to leave any dangling threads. I, 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 I hope that I answered all of the any unanswered questions that, you know, I might have posed in the book and I hope I answered them by the end of it. And that was that was one of my goals with that chapter. And that last chapter made me really cry. But you that was perfect. I said, No, oh, I know you. I said, I know, I know. So what's next for you and where can everybody find out about you and your work? And by the way, all of my books go to my dermatologist. I don't have to visit him. But in order to go and say hi to him, I have to bring books. I'm serious. <laughs> his wife his wife told him to call me. And every couple of weeks, Dr. M calls me and says, what do you got? So I read like 10 last week, and I have no interviews with them. So the books are in the bag, and this one's going in it too, because she's going to want to read it. She just takes them oh. off. Thank you. That's like I, my yeah. very first book that I signed was my my hygienist at my dentist. So I walked into the appointment and it was sitting right on the counter. Um, so that's, yeah. that's so nice. Um, thank you. Um, so right now, I guess for me, I'm I'm basically just kind of hanging on to the the cliff's edge with my fingers because it's kind of you know we're barreling towards the end of the school year. I have two kids. Um, and so we've got sports and theater and other activities, but um, so I'm very much looking forward to June, um, and I'm hoping that over the summer I, I have some time to do writing. I have another, I have an idea for another book bouncing around in my head about a woman mm-hmm. who dies under mysterious circumstances and ends up navigating a very unique version of the afterlife. So it's oh, nice. completely different. It's not a medical thriller at all, um, but I think a, a theme that I can sense in my writing is that I, I, I love really strong female characters. So, um, um, well, my book just came out two months ago. It's kind of different, and right from the point of view of the dead person behind the gravestone that was either wrongly accused or whose voice was was silent, or deserved to be dead. So, oh, some wow. of the stories are true. They are true. A teacher in my school was wrongly accused by the principal that, thank God, they finally got rid of her after 20 years of destroying everybody. And she told it to me right before she committed suicide. So the words, it's exactly right. Um, there's a whole other thing about a principal in my school. And then there's my grandmother's, and there's a whole bunch of other stories that are really true, that really happened. And it's called Faces Behind the Stones, Accusations. And hopefully my, my book tour with Partners in Crime, which starts next month, I hope I get some good feedback, but you never know. So where can everybody find out more about you? And that sounds like an interesting thing to write about. Well, we'll see. Yeah, I'm 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 excited by it, but um um so yeah, people can visit my website at cdjohnsonauthor.com and I'm also on Twitter at cdjohnsonauthor and Instagram at Katherine D Johnson author because CD Johnson author was taken. So Um, And I can't wait to read your newest book I reposted um, Oh there's another Look at this I just got another request for somebody that wants 
another interview. I knew she would. I interviewed her last week, and she wants me to do another one with her because her new book came out. And she was telling me about a Jodane Millman Midnight Call. She said that um, she had another book coming out. I said, so how come you don't love me anymore? They do. They love me. <laughs> so she's going she's gonna to do that. Yeah, Partners in Crime keeps me busy. But this, is, this has been the most fun I've had all morning. Um, oh, me too. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, publicist, for asking me to read it. Seriously, I I will indeed. Deborah is is a gem, and I'm I'm grateful to her, and so grateful to you for this opportunity. This is um this is my first like radio interview ever in my life. So really, thank you, you never for know. making it such a wonderful experience. <laughs> well, you know, it, I I learned a long time ago because I've been interviewed before that I give the author the questions because I won't blindside anyone. That's wrong. And I, if there are questions that somebody doesn't want to answer, and I answer, I review interview very famous authors, extremely famous. And if it's a New York Times author that is, you know, like more fussy, they'll say, well, I'll answer those, but I won't answer those. And I go, I don't care. It's your interview, not mine. I don't care. And I, I won't do that because it was done to me a couple of times when I got on the air. So thank you so much. This has been fun. Everybody, it's a beautiful day outside. Everybody have a great day. Catherine, thank you, and bye. Thank you so much. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 